Hello and welcome to the July edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and coming up on this show... I'm Kai Roslin. Now I'll be speaking to filmmaker and writer Searle Kochberg about his online talk for JW3, Irving Berlin, Musical Genius. I'm Tony Honigberg. I'll be speaking to Professor Gabby Sarusi. He and his team at Ben-Gurion University have made a major breakthrough in the fight against COVID-19 that could help the world live with the virus. I'm Kate Fulton, and I'll be speaking to Deborah Barnes about her mother's experiences during the Holocaust and how they've inspired her new book, The Young Survivors. I'm John Kay, and I'll be finding out why the Foundation for Jewish Heritage is calling for urgent repairs to synagogues in both Iraq and Syria. Their chief executive, Michael Mayle, will tell us more. As if all of that isn't enough, we'll also have our rabbinic thought for the month, which comes from Rabbi Harvey Belovsky of Golders Green United Synagogue. But before all that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. Synagogues across England will be allowed to reopen for prayer from July the 4th. And the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, announced that all places of worship could hold wedding services, but with a maximum of 30 guests. Everyone would be subject to social distancing as per the government's latest easing of lockdown rules. The chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, said the return to congregational activity would be as cautious as was necessary to protect communities. Israel's outgoing ambassador to Britain, Mark Regev, has gone home. His successor is the controversial Tsipi Hotovoli, Israel's settlements minister, who is known for being a hardline supporter of the annexation of Palestinian land. Australian-born Mr Regev said before his departure that as much as he was a diplomat to the court of St James, he was also the ambassador to the British Jewish community. During his four years' tenure, he had a slightly fierce take-no-prisoners reputation when called on to make Israel's case. It's not known as yet what his new post will be back home. More than 1,000 parliamentarians from across Europe have signed an open letter expressing serious concerns about Israel's planned annexation of territory in the West Bank. The unprecedented letter includes the signatures of well-known Jewish political figures in the UK, such as Lord Michael Howard and Dame Margaret Hodge. The letter, which is addressed to European foreign ministries, was organised by, amongst others, the former Speaker of the Israeli Parliament, Avraham Berg, and says the annexation could be fatal to the prospects of Israeli-Palestinian peace. The last functioning synagogue in Baghdad has been earmarked by Jewish heritage for urgent repair work. The local Jewish community, however, is so small that a minion is no longer possible. Meir Twig's exact location is being kept secret for security reasons. In all, there are hundreds of ancient shrines, cemeteries and prayer halls across Iraq and Syria that have been identified for restorative work in a report which was funded by Jewish philanthropists and Jewish heritage. The community in the two countries largely came to an abrupt end in the second half of the 20th century. And we'll be hearing more about this from Michael Mayle of the Foundation for Jewish Heritage later in this show. The Israeli pop star Dana International has defended the Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling after the transgender row she unwittingly started when she tweeted that sex is determined by biology. Miss Rowling found herself under attack from many in the LBGT community and from some of the stars of the Harry Potter films. Dana International, who won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1998, was born male but identified as female from a very young age. She wrote on Twitter... 
One can agree or disagree, but we must not jump too fast with accusations of transphobia. Finally, the much-loved 1971 musical Fiddler on the Roof, which starred Topol, is to be remade. The film, about poverty-stricken Jewish life in an Eastern European shtetl, won three Oscars, including Best Score for John Williams. Cast not known as yet, but some are already saying it will be a miracle of miracles if they can better the original. Viv, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. On many occasions on this show, we've spoken about some of the greatest composers that our community has boasted over the years. Arguably, the man who was at the top of this game was Irving Berlin. And our first guest this month is going to celebrate the life and work of the Russian-born composer in a talk entitled Irving Berlin, Musical Genius. Sel Kochberg is a filmmaker and writer on cinema and other performing arts, and he'll be hosting his online event on the 22nd of July. And he's here now. Can I begin by saying to you, Sel Kochberg, I really am so excited about talking to you about Irving Berlin. Could you tell us a bit about your background and where your, your interest in Irving Berlin started? Yes, nice to meet you, Clive. Basically, I have a history of writing about film, studying film, making film, various other parts of the performing arts. I used to be a singer, and my great love is the American Songbook. So I, I've kind of lived with these songs since I was a teenager, really. And currently, I teach at University of Portsmouth, but my direction of late has been very much toward documentary filmmaking. So, in a sense, this is a documentary. What was it about him, though? That and I know he was he was fantastic. I just remember him from years back, Holiday Inn, uh, or I could mention them all. I think the thing about Irving Berlin is that he uh, he has the longest career of any of the great American songbook writers. I mean, he, he had his first mega hit in 1911 with Alexander's Ragtime Band, and he was writing right up until the 1950s. I mean, his last mega hit on Broadway was Call Me Mad in the 1950, but of course, his music was used throughout the 1950s in movies, White Christmas, and There Is No Business Like Show Business, and that really kind of marks the end of his his career. But we're talking about an extraordinary career, which marks the transition as American popular music shifts from a kind of ragtime type of music to a jazzy era to a book-type, musical-type of music. I mean, he made those transitions seamlessly. And in that sense, he's a unique character. He was the son of a cantor, wasn't he? He was, but that rather suggests a kind of <laughs> a sort of learned middle class type of lifestyle. He he came from dire poverty. He was born in the Lower East Side, and his his father was a part time cantor. He didn't have a synagogue gig as such. He he just filled in as and when. 
And Irving Berlin really was an errand boy. He was a singing washer. He left school very young. He was a self-made person, absolutely. He, he didn't know how to read music. He, he was just an extraordinary character. You know, like a lot of the jazz-era greats, particularly musicians who couldn't read music either, he just did it all on his own. What was his first big break then? The first big hit was Alexander's Ragtime Band, but he was already publishing when he was in his teens. He had his first song published when he was 18 called Marie from Sunny Italy, which was not a big hit, but he did get it published. But Alexander's Ragtime Band was published. And of course, in those days, we're talking about music publishing. We're not talking about records because records were not really to command the center stage for until after the first world war but alexander's ragtime band was published in 1911 and so sold over one million copies which one is million? extraordinary over oh. one million copies yeah tell us about now your online event how will it work what will people see It's going to be, I've been doing a fair bit of online teaching in my university job. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk rather chronologically about his work, thematically as well, but it'll be the the highlights, the markers of his career. And I've interspersed it with clips from YouTube. And they're all songs that were featured, obviously, in film. The idea is that you can get a sense of the journey he was on. One of the interesting things about Irving Berlin is a lot of his songs that he wrote very early on feature in films that are are much, much later. He was very good at recycling and reformatting, repackaging his music. For instance, a film like Easter Parade, and there'll be a clip, clip in the lecture about that, most of the music for Easter Parade was written decades earlier, and he sold the package to MGM with a top-up of maybe two or three new songs, one of which was A Couple of Swells, which became a big hit. So he was a very clever businessman. He was also the first of the great songwriters to have his own music publishing company. So he was an extraordinary entrepreneur as well as a great songwriter, and I hope to kind of give a flavor of the man on the 22nd of July. Gosh, you make him sound even more exciting than I thought he was. Did he actually ever learn music, or was it all absolutely there, and he just put it... (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Well, he's a very hard man to pin down, because he, as far as I know, never could read music properly. What he did is he had music notation people working with him very closely and obviously arrangers but arrangers that was absolutely normal most composers didn't arrange their own music unless they were great musicians like Richard Rogers so that was normal but what he had is he had this famous and everyone talks about this he had this piano which was a bit like a gear shift piano and he would only play in one key on this piano And he would literally have a lever, which would allow him to change keys. (laughs) He could start playing in another key. 
and the music notation person would write it all down. So he had an instinctive ear, and I think you talk about his father being a cantor. He obviously was steeped in the sounds of the Lower East Side, including Jewish liturgical music. And he just was a guy who could appropriate that for the popular song. And of all of the great songwriters, he was the most popular. Absolutely. I mean, there's a very famous quote by Jerome Kern. Jerome Kern was more or less a contemporary. Jerome Kern had his first hit in 1914. But Jerome Kern died in 1945. But at some point, he was interviewed about Berlin because people were rather, journalists were rather, music critics rather, not scathing, but they found Irving Berlin a bit therapy at times, whatever. But Jerome Kern is quoted as saying, Berlin has no place in American music. He is American music. And he was. He was, he was incredibly versatile. My personal favorite period of his is the 1930s when he was working in Hollywood. And he, he wrote a lot for Fred Astaire. And those songs for me, like Cheek to Cheek and Let's Face the Music and Dance and Change Partners, these are the great, to my mind, the great Irving Berlin songs. Isn't White Christmas the biggest one of them all? That's the biggest seller, the biggest, I don't know if it still holds that record, but it certainly did as the the best seller of all time. Well, and that's a very interesting, that was written, obviously, it was performed by Bing Crosby famously. But interestingly, and it's a typical Irving Berlin <laughs> business strategy, he actually wrote that song in 1939, three years before the movie that Holiday Inn was made, which featured the song for the first time. And he was working at 20th Century Fox on a Sonia Haney and Tyrone Power musical called Thin Ice. And he was just sitting around the pool thinking and wishing he was with his family on the East Coast, etc. And he wrote a song about Oh, I'm sitting in Los Angeles in the sunshine. If you ever, if you read the, the real lyrics, the full lyrics, and I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. And then, of course, it goes into the main melody. He remembered it. He clocked it. He had no use for the song at that moment. And, of course, in 1942, when he was commissioned to write a score for a Holiday Inn, there it was. He just pulled it out of his filing cabinet and bingo. Right, can I ask you finally, does Irving Berlin belong to a bygone era? Is he of a bygone era? I, it's like saying it's Jerome Kern or Gershwin of a bygone era. I think these songs are continually reinterpreted and jazz performers will carry on doing them in different and exciting new ways. They they open up spaces in the music for all sorts of interpretation. And I think as long as people want to hear the American Songbook, people will, will want to hear Irving Berlin. Where do people go if they want more information for the event that's on the 22nd of July? I would look at the JW3 website. The event is called... Irving Berlin, Musical Genius. 
It's online for JW3 on Wednesday, the 22nd of July at 2 p.m. And we've been hearing about it from the host, Searle Kochberg. Searle, thank you very much for speaking to me on this month's edition of The Jewish Views. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. The race is well and truly on in a global effort to try and help the battle against coronavirus. However, scientists at Ben-Gurion University have created a new device that could truly change how the world lives in the shadow of COVID-19. It is, in effect, a breathalyzer that will determine if someone has the virus in as little as one minute. The man in charge of the team is our next guest. He is Professor Gabby Sarusi, and I'm delighted and honoured to say he joins us now. Thank you very much for coming on our programme today, Professor Sarusi. Yeah, thank you for having me on board. Firstly, tell me a little bit about the test kit and how you realised that this could be used to test for COVID-19, because it is, in effect, a breathalyzer, isn't it? Yes, it's a, in a breathalyzer format. We positioned our test uh, to be uh, at point of entry, not at point of care. Namely, we want to screen for example, passengers that are coming to the airport, whether they are possibly carrier of coronavirus or not. Therefore, we developed a very, very fast using a breathalyzer format. And inside the breathalyzer, we have an electronic chip where the, where the individual is exhaling into the breathalyzer. The surface of this chip is covered with the all the biological, biological species that is coming with the, his exhale. And basically what we are measuring later on is different. The electrical property of this chip before and after the breathalyzer test. And what we found out uh, during the clinical trials is that we can see a very, very distinguishable signature of a corona carrier compared to healthy people. We did this test along with a swab PCR test that were taken jointly. And we found out that after giving our results and the PCR test got their results a day later, we could see that uh, we have a matching of a mo- more than 90% compared to the, to the PCR test. Well, that's a big difference. Yeah, we, at the beginning, uh, we, we understand the physics behind it. It's actually physics, not even biology. We understand the physics behind it. We simulate it prior to the test. And we say all the time that in physics, unlike the biology, when you predict something and you simulate something and you see it once, you know that it is working. Actually, I always give the example of the black hole. Everybody predicted the black hole, but nobody saw it until uh, last year when scientists managed to show in a very, very nice way that there is a black hole. And it was only once it it was enough to prove existence of black holes. So you told me how it works. That's interesting. We've seen other test kits emerge. And obviously, you've just told me that yours is much more accurate than the swab test. Is What about as a blood test? Because I've seen something about blood tests being fairly accurate as well. Yeah, of course. We, we have to understand that we are directly measuring what is coming from the lung. When you are blowing the the breathalyzer, that's what we are measuring. Blood test 
can be measured or can be tested only only after certain days, something like five days up to even 14 days, when their immune system of the individual start to react and start to react against the virus. And only then you can identify the antigen, which is in the blood, in a way that you can say, okay, this individual was exposed to the virus or not. We try to get much, much before that. We think today that we can diagnose an individual and maybe one day, one and a half day after he was infected. It's very, very hard to know it exactly because nobody can make a test that, that deliberately will infect somebody and then test him every hour. But we believe and we have a very good basis to believe that we can diagnose the, an in the individual one day after he was infected. Once you've diagnosed an individual, what happens then to, not to the results necessarily, but what happens to the individual? Are they then supposed to self-isolate? Are they then supposed to go to hospital? Or what, what are they going to do? Okay, this is very much depend on the authority policy. For example, if you're talking about airport, let's say somebody is coming to the airport terminal and want to, want to check in. So he has to do this test. And let's assume that he, he came out positive. And what we suggest is to do a second one, just to make sure that we don't making him a damage of not going on the flight. Okay, so do a second one and see if you're positive. If you're positive in two of them, then you have to probably go home to be in quarantine or maybe to do a PCR test just to make sure that you are really a carrier. It's very good for him, for, for him as an individual and also for his family and his friends and so on. I believe that after this pandemic, people will be sensitive to who is flying with, the, with them. So I, I believe that even people that they will have influenza, for example, will not, people, the, the other passenger won't, won't like to have them in the same airplane because nobody wants to get infected with influenza and not to be affected with any other disease while he's flying. And I believe that it's not re related only to coronavirus, but it will be also related to any other disease. It just sounds like a fantastic instrument. What is the cost of this per individual instrument if it was on the retail market, let's say? Okay. Since the system uses a spectrometer in order to analyze it, so there is a, the capital cost, which is the spectrometer, and this can be all, only purchased by, let's say, clinic, neighborhood clinic or airport or something like that because this instrument can cost something like 100 to 200 thousand dollar or sterling or whatever in the case possible part with the breathalyzer itself with the chip that everything is disposable that may cost a few dollars you know up to ten dollars so altogether if such system can check or can test something like four between 2,000 to 4,000 tests per day, I think that it really covers its price within a month or two. And basically the main part price of the kits and, and the test kits, as I said, they are something like uh, up to $10. So the application could be used, as well as airports, of course, in shopping centres, in schools? Yeah, of course, of course. I, I believe that in order to clear people and to make them the, and to make the environment safe, uh, you want to clear them by this test. 
maybe it's up to the policy of the country or the city whether if somebody does the test is clear for 24 hours 48 hours 72 hours it's up to the authority to decide uh, for how long he is clear I know you're waiting for the US Food and Drug Administration to clear this machine but what about other countries because well, we don't in the UK of course we don't rely on the US Food and Drug Administration we've got our own food departments and Department of Health. Are you selling it yet to any other countries? Uh, we, we want to. We didn't the commercial part yet, but, but we definitely, once we will uh, start to uh, commercialize the product, I believe that Europe, the European market is a very, very important market, as well as US and in the Far East as well. Definitely in all these kind of places we have to go to the regulation and to clear. Luckily, there is today a fast track of the CE in Europe and the FDA in US and in other countries because people are really anxious to lift uh, this quarantine and they want to open the economy. And this is uh, something which is very, very important, I believe. The economy is very important. We know we're suffering here in the UK at the moment and trying to get things back on at least some sort of footing to get the economy moving. Well, there's no denying that whatever happens with this device, the world owes a great debt of gratitude to you and all the team at Ben-Gurion who are playing a part in hopefully defeating coronavirus. Professor Sarusi, thank you so much for coming on our programme, taking time to tell us all about the developments on this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, the effect of the Holocaust, the Shoah, still resonates strongly in community today. And it's not just the survivors that have lived through the effects of it, but the children and the subsequent generations as well. One of those stories of survival has been the inspiration behind a new book called The Young Survivors. And it's written by our next guest, Deborah Barnes, who joins me now. Talk us through a little bit about your background. How did your journey as a writer begin? Well, I studied journalism, so I always enjoyed writing. And I always had that ambition to one day write a a book. But I think a lot of people have that ambition. My mother was a Holocaust survivor. And I grew up knowing that she was a survivor. But she was very young during the war. She was born in 1938. So she didn't really have a lot of memories, hardly any at all. So she didn't really talk about it very much. And actually, the Holocaust was an uncomfortable subject in our family when I was growing up. It was something that we avoided so as not to upset mum. But things sort of changed in 2006 when by some remarkable find on the internet, mum was reunited with the lady called Denise Holstein, who had been the monitor looking after her in the orphanage outside Paris during the war. And they met up together 60 years after later. And it kind of opened the door for me to ask some more questions and for it to be discussed more openly in the family. But mum still didn't remember She didn't suddenly get any memories back. So I started doing some research and then it it kind of evolved from there. Much of this book is 
based, therefore, on the on facts and what actually your mother went through. So to what extent is it sort of true or elaborated on? If I just go back to 2013, well, my mum died in uh, 2010. In 2013, I was offered redundancy from my job and I decided to take some time to do more research. So I went to France several times. I went to meet Denise myself. I went to, I connected with the Jewish community in Louvain, which was where my mother was in the orphanage. I went to the show Memorial in Paris and to Metz where my mum was born. But there were still so many gaps in the story and it became clear that it was going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to, to fill those gaps, which was very frustrating, obviously, having so many unanswered questions. But it made me take the decision to write a fictional story called The Young Survivors Following the Fate of a, of a Jewish Family in France During the War. But yes, it was definitely inspired by my mother's story. There are a few similarities, let's say. Yes. Did you know or know of your grandparents' story that led to your mother being an orphan? No. Well, that was something that, again, I knew growing up, I knew that I only had one set of grandparents because the others had died during the war. But eventually I found out, you know, there's quite a lot of information online. So through the the Auschwitz Museum... And places like that, I could find records. I've got a, I've got a book here that looks like one of the old telephone directories that has, actually has lists of all the convoys that left France. And I found my grandparents' names on the convoy on the lists of convoys. That must be very strange for you to see. Yes, to yeah. It makes it very real, doesn't it? It does make it re- very real. Another reason for writing this book as as a fictional novel was so I could manage my own emotions while I was doing it. Yes, I was going to ask you how, how, whether you found this very hard to write. I can imagine that, that all the things that happened and knowing that it was children that we were talking about yeah. must have been quite, quite a harrowing experience. Did you, did you feel you were sort of living that yourself through your mother's experiences? What I did... Or your aunts, I, I guess. I, I, created, I created characters... And for me, they were characters while I was writing the book because otherwise I would have just not been able to write it. It would have no, been, you'd have been in bits. Exactly. You need an arm's length. Yeah. yeah. I should probably at this point mention that I work for these. I now, after many, many years of not wanting to, to talk about the Holocaust and growing up in that, in that sort of environment, I now work for the Association of Jewish Refugees with refugees and holocaust survivors and i help them write their own life stories so i've done i've done about 20 books now writing other people helping them write their own life stories so i'm i've literally gone from one extreme to the other and all the stories are so incredible because obviously they all either escaped or survived and anybody who managed to do that has an incredible story to tell Yes. Otherwise, what about I, when you were doing research, when you were doing for your, you know, your, your mother's background or the, the, for, the, for the Young Survivors book? Were people willing to help you? I think if we look at Denise, for example, Denise Holstein, who I was talking about in the south of France, yeah. and I think she's quite typical of many survivors. She was in Auschwitz herself. For many years, she never spoke about it. The first few years, the first few decades, she never spoke about it. 
And I think that is very common with most people. They never spoke about it. And then it and then so and then their children or their grandchildren start asking. And I also think there's a vicious circle at the beginning. People don't want to talk about it. So their children don't are afraid to ask. And then because their children don't ask, they think their children aren't interested. And it can we sometimes it takes someone to come in and break that circle and the children to say, yes, of course, I want to know. But I didn't want to upset you by asking. You know, and then they start talking. Or Denise, for example, I think she started talking around 1986 or something and started talking in schools. And then she wrote a book. It also depends on what age they were during the war and, and what happened to them. But there's there's everybody. There's the people who still don't want to talk about it. And there are the people who... who yeah, are, it's very it, common, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there are people in their 80s and 90s now who are still going around to schools telling their stories. Well, they were before we went into lockdown, telling their stories once a week or something. And they're incredible. They're absolutely incredible people. When can people get their copy and they're from? The Young Survivors is published by Duckworth Books. It's out on the 23rd of July. It's available to pre-order now on Amazon, through Waterstones, and I would urge anybody to support their local independent bookshop as well. Also, there is a prequel short story, which I've written, called The Laskowski Brothers, which is available for free download on my website, which is deborahbarnesauthor.com. The book is called The Young Survivors, and we've been hearing about it from the author, Deborah Barnes. Deborah, thank you for speaking to me on this month's edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. The Foundation for Jewish Heritage has published a landmark report which calls for the urgent repair of various world synagogue sites. Among the list of priorities is the Mir Twig Synagogue in Baghdad. The Iraqi shawl tops the list because of its local and international significance. To find out more about the state of the building, we can speak to the chief executive of the Foundation for Jewish Heritage, Michael Mayle. Michael, why is this report considered to be such a landmark publication? Well, I tell you, it's simply unprecedented. It's not something that's been done before where we have looked to map all the Jewish heritage sites of Syria and, and Iraq, both historically and currently. So this is what makes the report unique. And the other interesting aspect of this was the fact that we were rating each site according to its significance and its condition. So we were trying to identify, you know, what were the most important sites that remain today and what state are they in? And this is a pointer to what might be, you know, the possibilities of future preservation work that could be done on those sites. It's an amazing story, you know, Babylonian Jewry going back 2,600 years. It's the oldest diaspora community in the world. It had a huge impact on the Jewish world, wider society. And it's very sad to think that today, the turn of the 20th century, over a third of Baghdad was Jewish. It had a huge population. It made a huge contribution to the region. And today we're now talking about only a handful of Jews that remain. And one barely functioning synagogue in, in the centre of, of Baghdad. What sort of state is that synagogue in at the moment? <laughs> well, you know, we, we took, I mean, we, we're very fortunate to actually have a local person who was able to take photographs both inside and out. 
it, it's not in a great condition. There, there are various problems with the building, structural problems, um, ingress of water, etc. So it, it is in a poor state. It would be great if work could be done on preserving it. But of course, there are huge sensitivities. And, you know, certainly within the few remaining Jews that are in Baghdad, there's a great reluctance to draw attention to themselves. So we, we are obviously trying to be very sensitive and talking to various experts about what could be done. But I would say this, this current climate remains highly problematic. So you haven't necessarily got the support of the Iraqi government or other authorities within Baghdad. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what I would say is that we're taking advice. You know, we, the, we commissioned this organization called ASOR, the American Schools of Oriental Research, who undertook the mapping work. They have got their own contacts with the Iraqi government and with Iraqi civil society organizations. And, you know, we're very much following their advice. And as you will appreciate, the atmosphere can change from month to month. And the feeling was that currently this is not a good time to undertake any such works. And, and you know, we, we will just simply abide by that. Our hope is that in drawing attention both to the general topic of the Jewish heritage of Iraq and Syria and highlight, highlighting specific sites that, that, that require preservation, this will enable activities to, to be undertaken at a future time, at the right time. But currently we feel, you know, no works can be undertaken. What's the situation in Syria? Well, Syria is, is worse than Iraq. I mean, really, you know, the, the four highlighted projects in the report, which, which you're familiar with, you know, the, the tomb of Nahum, we've got the, the Sassoon synagogue in Mosul, we've got the Jewish cemetery in Baghdad, and we have the Mirtweg synagogue. All of them are in Iraq, and that, that reflects the situation that Iraq is highly problematic, Syria is simply off the table. There is no work that can be done today on Jewish heritage preservation, given the current civil war that remains to this day. Now, you actually know about synagogues all around the world. How do you actually get the information in the first place? Presumably, you've got yeah. people in, in all these countries. Yes. Well, what, what happened was this. You know, we, the Foundation for Jewish Heritage was established because there was no organization working internationally on the preservation of Jewish heritage, Jewish built heritage. And we found this extraordinary. So we established the charity in, in 2015. As you know, we've got quite distinguished trustees, Sir Simon Shama, Lord Danny Finkelstein, Jim Murphy, who was in Tony Blair's government. He is a, a trustee. And one of the first things we did was we undertook we commissioned, it was actually the Centre for Jewish Art at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem who undertook the work that we commissioned to map all the historic synagogues of Europe. So we've got a database of 3,347 synagogues. It is calculated that in 1939 there were 17,000 synagogues. So less than a quarter remain from that time. And of the surviving 3,347, less than a quarter are today functioning synagogues. So the vast majority are either used for other purposes or are abandoned. And in mapping these sites, we again also rated them according to their significance and their condition so that we could identify the most important sites, most in danger. And those are the ones that we have been working on. So we have identified 16 priority historic synagogues at risk that we are highlighting and you can see them on our on our website and as a result of that we are 
offering various types of support to the projects, as you'll appreciate each one is its own story. But I would say, if I can highlight a, a few that, that are, should we say, we're, we're particularly moving forward on at the moment, you may be familiar with the, the synagogue in Merthyr Tydfil in Wales. This was built in the 1870s. It's a, it's a Victorian Gothic structure. It's, a, it's an amazing building. The community came to an end in 1983, and the building has been lying empty since 2006. It is a grade two listed building. It's a, it's, it's, it's a recognised heritage site. It's also recognised as a site at risk by, the, by CADU, which is the Welsh heritage, the governmental body looking after Welsh heritage. We bought the building last year and we have a vision to turn it into a Welsh Jewish heritage centre. And we actually just released the news that we'd raised £125,000 to undertake urgent works to stabilise the building, preserve the building. So that is a project that is, is going forward. Very pleased with it. Now, when you're dealing with different countries, I mean, yes, when you're dealing with Wales, you know the structure, the setup is part of the United Kingdom, and you're, you know, you're looking to rescue, if you like, a, a synagogue, and therefore you, can, you know who you're dealing with. Yeah. When you're dealing, though, with any other country where there is virtually no Jewish community at all, or they were perhaps not so tolerant towards Jewish communities yeah. in, in periods of time. Is that much more difficult? You're, you're absolutely right. I, I would say in every country, there are special circumstances and special challenges. You know, Belarus has got its own particular culture. And, you know, one, one of our, our, you know, our issues early on has been to, to, to try and understand that culture, to understand how things work in Belarus. By the way, what is their attitude towards heritage preservation and what are, what are, what, what are the, the, the approaches to that? And it's hard. I mean, I, I wouldn't say, you know, in terms of hostility, in a place like Belarus, it, it was a Soviet society and there was a, you know, a negative attitude towards the Jewish story in Belarus. Uh, it was a forgotten story and a forbidden story. So, for example, today, if you go into the local museum of Slanum, you will not find anything on the Holocaust in the, in the local museum, which is extraordinary given the fact that this was a, a Jewish majority town and was a centre of Jewish life for many centuries. So from our point of view, while it makes it more challenging, it also makes it more important because what we're doing is reviving this story in a place where it's simply been neglected. The great synagogue in Slonim, you know, it is the last testimony to the Jewish life that was. You know, there, there is nothing else there that points to what existed before the Second World War. And that's why, from our point of view, you know, it would be a, a tragedy if these buildings were lost, if they were destroyed, if they were knocked down. And what we want to do is precisely the opposite. We want to preserve these buildings, but to preserve them for educational purposes. And from the point of view of our trustees, we view our work as very much educational. Saving these buildings are a means to an end. And that end is education. Michael Mayle, Chief Executive of the Foundation for Jewish Heritage, thank you for telling us about some of the remarkable work your organisation is doing to help protect all about Jewish heritage. Many thanks indeed. No, you're most welcome. You're most welcome. Thank you. This is the Jewish Views in association with JW3. And now it's time for our Rabbinic Thought for the Month, which comes courtesy of Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from Golders Green United Synagogue. In this period, we are reading the book of Bamidbar, that's Numbers. 
and it tells a story of the life of the Israelites in the desert. There aren't really any laws, and any laws that appear are really confined to the period of the desert. The book governs how they travelled, the formation, their tribes, and then some history, which is not always very favourable, how they complained, how they fought with each other, how they rebelled, and how... In the middle of the book, we see that they were condemned to live out their lives in the desert and only the next generation would enter the land despite the promise. And so while most of the stops they make are not actually recorded in any detail, just by name right at the end of the book, it's a story of wanderings. It's a book which is really about roles rather than rules. By which I mean that we kind of see how individuals can work within a functional society, how individuals can be part of a family and the family is part of a tribe and the tribe is part of a cabin, a flag encampment, look near the beginning of the book in the second chapter, and how those flag encampments form part of a people. It's about how you balance our individual needs for spiritual development, personal expression, and commitment to a family or larger group, to a people and to humanity, and how we balance those things. Very near the beginning of the book, there are some very, very long numbers, and that's probably why the book is called that, long lists of the tribes, how many people were in each tribe, and reconfigured in various ways. And sometimes we might wonder what all that information is required for. That's where the roles come in. Because it's intended to teach us that it's possible to create a functional society with a very clear communal direction, but nonetheless preserving some kind of individual integrity without submerging the individual to the group. And in fact, a Midrash, a rabbinic legend, explains how when God descended on Mount Sinai, he was surrounded by a retinue of angels, all in a particular formation, each with their own worldview, each with their own job, but yet somehow functioning together. And the Israelites said, we like the look of that. And God said that can be replicated. The purpose of the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, is not to teach us laws. As I said, there are almost no laws in it that survive the desert period, but to teach us about how it's possible to live in a particular formation in a community as part of the human race while preserving our integrity. And the complaints demonstrate when that goes wrong. So they complain about the manner, they complain about the land, they complain about the leadership. It's good to see nothing very much changes. But how those complaints are processed and dealt with, how God teaches Moshe and Aaron, the leaders, to respond, and how eventually Moshe and Aaron themselves learn that they will not survive the desert era but be replaced by other leaders who are more suitable for the land, is what the book's about. It's about leadership, it's about community, and it's about the preservation and promotion of the delicate balance between the individual and the life of the community. Thank you very much to Rabbi Harvey Belofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue with our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. All that's left for me to do is to say thank you to all of our guests, to Sel Kochberg, to Professor Gabby Sarusi, Michael Mayle, and Deborah Barnes. And of course, thank you to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to say thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, who as ever works tirelessly putting this programme together. Don't forget that you could always listen to this edition or any previous edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. 
The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with JW3. From me, Phil Dave, and the whole team, that's Kate Fulton, Tony Honickberg, John Kay, and Clive Roslin, we hope that you'll join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>